0: you are listening to a demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today Brett Easton Alice's writings we get into part three of Lunar Park. That's right. This is part three. So if you haven't listened to parts one and two, go do that right now. Damn it. As always, before we get into the book, I have chit chat. So this week, yesterday actually, I released a paperback version of my short story collection, Angry Bluebird. I am quite proud of that collection and it has the cream of the crop when it comes to my short stories because it not only has nine out of the 10 short stories that I published last year. If you were with me last year, you may remember that I did a 10 week thing where I released a new short story every week and it went up like a Led Zeppelin and I don't mean that in the good way. It came crashing down in my face within the first two weeks. Um, people on Twitter, you know, they, they said that they were going to be supportive of writing of other writers. And by that, they meant that they're going to watch from the sidelines and clap and cheer, but not shell out 99 cents to read your writing. So aside from that, um, I also have the best short stories from toxic literature, which is out of print and the best short stories from, Disease of Ambition, which is also out of print. The poetry for Disease of Ambition is now in the 2023 edition of Iconic Misery, I believe, along with new poems. So if you haven't picked up a paperback or updated your ebook of Iconic Misery, you should do so. But this week also has other big news for me because I finished the first draft. ...of my latest novel, which is yet to be titled. And, you know, I'm in my feels about it, because the first draft, man, that's like falling in love for the first time. And, you know, you can't wait to to go back to it and fill it up with all your thoughts and feelings. And then you finish that, and you're like, oh, man... I've I've accomplished something here, but then you have to go back through it and scrutinize it. And today I decided to start that process, the drafting process. This is a writing podcast, so I'm talking about writing here, believe it or not. The drafting process for all of my books has been different. But I discovered something that works better for me when I was writing my third novel, Surviving New America. Ironically enough, I was thinking about that book today because... The ending of this new novel reminds me of the ending of Surviving New America. Now, for those of you who haven't read Surviving New America, or those of you have that need a refresher, it ends with Birch and Rosa together in his kitchen, and he's showing her how to make hamburgers. Now, that may not seem like an exciting ending to you, but it was kind of... Um, a false happy ending. It was more of a pause, especially if you know what happens at the beginning of Birch and what happens during the events of Nero twenty one forty. But this book it ends the way it ends. And it ponders conclusions and if real life can have a conclusion, aside from death of course, or relationships ending. Although that doesn't always mean that they're over and I have a lot to contemplate with this book. And one of the things that I I thought about today is the fact that I have this timeline set up in the book where it goes back and forth in time, not in the literal sense where Steve Sebastian is time traveling. That's not happening in this book. But what happens is the first part of the book Takes place in 2025, which is only two years in the future from now. And then it goes back to a flashback era for the book in 2018. And I introduce new characters in each part. So, one of my tasks as someone who wrote his first draft without an outline, because I never use an outline, the first draft is my outline. I have to determine where to make references to the events that take place in the past, because if Steve Sebastian is thinking about things that happened in 2020, why wouldn't he be thinking about things that happened in 2018, especially if they had such a big impact on him? I just watched this episode of Mad Men. My wife and I have almost completed our first watch through of it. And it's the episode Waterloo. And for those of you who haven't seen this show, I'm sorry, but the show's been off the air for since 2015, and I managed to avoid spoilers. But Bertram Cooper, who is one of the founding members of Sterling Cooper, an ad agency, passes away, and it's during the moon landing. He doesn't die in space. He dies on his couch watching the moon landing happen. Mm-hmm. And so the last scene kind of got me choked up and it's of Don coming downstairs after they have found a way for him to survive in the agency again. And there is this scene where he sees Bertram on the steps and he's speaking to Don and, Don is kind of taken aback because Bertram's dead, right? But then he sings this song that I assume might be from a play, or a musical, rather. It's called The, The Best Things in Life Are Free. And I posted this meme on Instagram and Facebook and my stories about my it's one of those memes where the guys pressing both Coke and Pepsi and pouring them into the same cup. And the meme is on the left hand side where Coke or Pepsi would be my desire to write meaningful novels. And on the other side, it's my love of sex, death and comic books. And I'm pouring them into my writing. And This is something that I grappled with in this book, because as I was reading Demise of the Trinity, I was thinking, dear God, this is very noir-esque. It's very pulpy, in a sense. And the dialogue, especially. And I was leaning into that with this book, because it's very dialogue-heavy, pages and pages of dialogue. And I took inspiration from my recent short stories, like Gwen. Gwen, the character from the short story "Gwen and Angry Bluebird," well, she's in this novel. And Greenskin—it makes many different references to Greenskin. And Wayne Paladus may or may not appear in this book, not as a major character, mind you. This is not a sequel to Greenskin, this is its own thing, but, you know, it exists in that universe, sort of like how, uh, Brady's analysis first four novels exist in the same universe. And I'm at that moment in the drafting process where I'm in, I'm doubting myself. I was so assured, assured, self-assured when I wrote Greenskin. And I think it's the best thing that I've ever written and when you do something like that, it's like the next thing that I do either has to top that or it doesn't. But it has to be pers- purposeful. You know, I can't go into it trying to write the best thing I've ever written, which some people think that if you don't do that, why bother? But, you know, if you're going to go into it trying to write the best thing you've ever written, all you're going to do is disappoint yourself. If you don't do that. And so I didn't try to do that. I tried to write something that is interesting, intriguing to me, and something that I enjoyed writing as opposed to, you know, exploring various literary tropes and whatnot. I just wrote. And in some school of thought that might result in the best thing I've ever written again, something that tops everything else that I've done. However, I always, I always feel like there's going to be failure of some sort as if I was going to fail as a result of people not liking it, I guess. I mean, every, most of the people who have read Greenskin have liked it. I've only heard one opinion about it that was negative negative. You can't, get, you can't garner universal praise. That, that doesn't exist anywhere. And I was thinking about Lunar Park because I'm reading it with you guys and you ladies and you people. You people. It's racist. And how this is literally, in Brett Sinellis' own words, him trying to write a Stephen King novel. Of course, it doesn't come out that way. It's much like Radiohead saying, well, we're trying to make a song that sounds like Miles Davis, and they end up with something like Paranoid Android. Another example of that, since I brought it back to music somehow, is uh, one of the latest lurking vowel singles called Out of Eyes, where I was trying to get an 80s vibe very ambient and whatnot. And I looked up the chord progression for in your eyes and I transposed it to a different key, ended up with a almost totally different, um, chord progression entirely. And it sounds absolutely nothing like in your eyes by Peter Gabriel. It doesn't even sound vaguely (laughs) eighties, Anytime I try to do something like that, it doesn't work out the way that I, I plan on. So anyway, let's get into, I have chapter three here. I don't know if that's where we want to pick up, but that's where I'm going to start reading. It's entitled Morning, and it takes place on Friday, October 31st. I woke up in the guest bathroom with no idea of how I'd gotten there, but I didn't panic. I took this in stride because the guest bedroom was something that had been happening with irregularity, I hadn't found alarming yet. Victor was barking from somewhere inside the house, and the clock on the nightstand said 7.15. I groaned and pushed my face deep into a pillow. It was damp. I'd been crying in my sleep again. But then sat up quickly with the realization that I needed to prove something this morning. That I was responsible. That I wasn't an addict. That I was clean. Did I say guest bathroom earlier? Or did I say guest bedroom? I said. See, I have two lamps in this room, but I don't have any overhead light because this is this used to be my childhood bedroom. And I picked it when I was like 11 because I liked the skylight in here, but I didn't realize how that would make for such poor lighting. And I made it my office partially because the room that used to be my office had an issue in it so I had to move all my stuff in here with my guitars and you don't care about this finally I was gazing at myself in the mirror of the guest bathroom I had the dehydrated and haggard face of a man 10 years older and my eyes were so red that you couldn't see the irises I guzzled water from the tap then decided to make myself halfway presentable by pulling off the t-shirt with a marijuana leaf on it and then putting it back on inside out (laughs) Since I couldn't find my jeans, I tore the top sheet off the bed and draped myself in it. I walked out of the room a ghost. Trudging toward the kitchen, I passed the housekeeper, Rosa, vacuuming the living room, and I followed large footprints that seemed to have been stamped in ash onto the beige carpeting, which this morning seemed shaggier and darker than normal. As the ghost padded through the living room, it stopped, when it noticed the odd formation of the furniture, the sectional couch, the La Cobissière chairs, and the Ames table had been rearranged for the party, yet this new setup now seemed weirdly familiar to me. I wanted to figure out why, but the sound of the vacuum merging with Victor's barking forced the ghost to move quickly toward the kitchen. The house had been referred to as a McMansion in the talk article, 9,000 square feet and situated in a fast-growing and wealthy suburb, the 307 Elsnor Lane wasn't even the grandest in the community. It merely reflected the routine affluence of the neighborhood. It was, according to a spread in El Decor, minimalist, global, eclectic, with an emphasis on Spanish revival, but with elements of mid-century French chateau and a touch of 60's palm, spring, palm Springs Modernism. I promise I can read. So, basically what we have here is a lot of details, almost like American Psycho. And it's interesting, because it parallels back to American Psycho in several different ways. This entire novel, that is. Because of the you know, presence of Patrick Bateman... He's referring to himself as a ghost now as well when what happens with Patrick Bateman is arguably not real. Aside from that, let's let's get going. There was a fully equipped gym where I sometimes exercise half-heartedly and where Jane's personal trainer, Klaus, helped sculpt her flawless body. And there was a sculpting media room with a plasma TV that had the screen size of a small wall and surround sound and hundreds of DVDs shelved alphabetically on either side of it, as well as red felt antique pull table. I don't don't really grasp why people do DVDs or Blu-rays alphabetically. I do mine either by genre, depending on what the genre is, or I have it by director. So in my Blu-ray drawer... I have all my Nolan movies together, all my Fincher movies together. I don't have very many David Lynch movies on Blu-ray, but I have most of them on DVD, and they're in a different cabinet together, etc., etc. The ghost floated toward the kitchen or family headquarters. That really was a marvel, all stainless steel and countertops made from Brazilian concrete. What is Brazilian concrete? I feel like that's one of those things in American Psycho that was just made up. A Thermador range, a Sub-Zero refrigerator, two dishwashers, two stoves with noiseless fans, two sinks, a wine cooler, a drawer freezer, and an entire wall of sliding glass that overlooked an Olympic-sized swimming pool and a jacuzzi, and a vast intensely green and lush lawn, which was bordered by a huge and carefully maintained garden blooming with the flowers I didn't know the names of, and beyond all that was the clearing and then the woods. The ghost saw no party cluttering the house. It was immaculate. Confused but impressed, the ghost stared at a vase of fresh tulips sitting in the center of the kitchen table, isn't it interesting that he's been living here for a few months and yet all of this seems new to him. He and he keeps referring to himself as the ghost of course, but this is obviously not his house. It may even be in his name and he may live there, but he doesn't really live there, does he? All of this stuff, this is stuff that his wife Jane put together. It fits her life, but it doesn't fit his life. There's nothing that he's done to this house or these dwellings that is his personally, except for maybe his office. And a great example of that is in the previous chapter when he goes with Jay Mcierney or Miney, they go to the garage to do coke together. You know, that's not really a cozy place to be doing things like that, especially at a party. Marta was already up fiddling with a Gaggia espresso maker as the chic hungover ghost wrapped in the sheet hovered around the kitchen, placing his burning forehead against the wine-cooling cabinet for one brief moment before falling into a chair at the giant round table on the far side of the room. Marta was... A purposefully unattractive woman in her mid-thirties whom Jane had befriended while shooting a movie in L.A., she was loyal and discreet and handled all of Jane's business effortlessly. Just one of the thousands of women from that town so attracted to celebrity and so devoted to its demands that she followed Jane across the country to these cold and unknown suburbs. The ghosts needed coffee, and suddenly Marta was setting an Herme shined the Anchor china cup filled with a steamy, milky espresso in front of him, and the ghost mumbled his thanks as she went over to the warring juice extractor and started squeezing oranges. Strung out, the ghost stared at the copper pans hanging from a rack above the island in the middle of the kitchen, morosely sipping his coffee as his eye shifted to the daily variety already sitting on, a, on top of a pile that included the New York Times the calendar section from the Los Angeles Times, and The Hollywood Reporter. That was all one long sentence. So let's break it down a little bit. So he mentions this weird china cup, after already talking about this expensive espresso machine, a juice extractor. Not a juice machine, a juice extractor. And it's funny Because this is already setting him apart from the rest of us readers. Most people... You know, I've seen TV shows and movies where people have squeezed fresh juice from those things. I've never seen one in person. I've never been to someone's house and have them offer me fresh squeezed orange juice. We all get, get them in fucking jugs. And in fact, I don't even drink orange juice anymore because it's just full of fucking sugar. So... If I'm going to start out the day, it's probably not going to be with coffee and orange juice. I don't care how long where I am. But he's also talking about these copper pans hanging from a rack above the island in the middle of the kitchen. Are those things being used, do you think? It sounds to me as though they're almost there for decoration. A lot of these things in this kitchen sound like it's just there for the sake of existing. To prove that we are in the upper epsilon of society. We are upper class. We are rich. And Bredison Ellis is just existing there. Much like that set of pots and pans. Hearing voices from upstairs, I breathed in deeply as I reached for our local paper preparing myself because I was still, even without a hangover, having trouble adjusting to the schedules everyone inhabiting this house maintained. So after Margaret left the kitchen to get Sarah, I roused myself and poured a large glass of freshly squeezed OJ and doused it with a half-empty bottle of kettle one left over from the party and neatly hidden among all the olive oil at the end of the counter. It was a small miracle. No one had gotten rid of it. I said the cocktail carefully and returned to the table. Do you get the feeling that when he mentions having among all the olive oil at the end of the counter, he has multiple different olive oils. This is another just weird detail akin to American Psycho. My wife loves olive oil. She uses it a lot for cooking. My wife is Italian, but we have one bottle of olive oil that and when we run out of that ol, that when we run out of that olive oil we go buy more olive oil we don't have multiple different bottles the newspapers kept stoking my fear new surveys provided awful statistics on just about everything evidence suggested that we were not doing well researchers gloomily agreed environmental psychologists were interviewed damage had unwittingly been done There were feared lapses. There were misconceptions about potential. Situations had deteriorated. Cruelty was on the rise. And there was nothing anyone could do about it. The populace populace was confounded yet didn't care. Unpublished studies hinted that we were all paying a price. Scientists peered into data and concluded that we should all be very worried. He's saying a lot here. But he's not saying anything at all, is he? I mean, he's just talking about the fear-mongering in newspapers. Much like the fear-mongering, it's all just buzzwords. And it's not really amounting to anything. And yet we have a whole paragraph of it where he's talking about how... this current culture that we're in. And mind you, this was... What, 2002, 2003? We're still in this shit. There's all this fear-mongering and bullshit that's going on. And what can you really do about it? You just sit on the sidelines, much like he's doing here, or the indie writers on Twitter do, and just watching it happen. But is he really watching it happen? Is there anything actually happening on the court? There's this lingering paranoia from the previous chapter that is probably going to be pervasive through the rest of the novel. Though I hadn't realized that Jane had walked into the kitchen without saying anything to the sniffling blob wrapped in the sheet hunched over the table. She was standing over the stove waiting for a pot of water to boil. She was making oatmeal for the kids. Her back to me. I tried to translate her body language and failed. I zoned out again on the countertop's specifically designed for the placement of olive oil bottles. Victor soon shuffled in. The dog stared at me. You bore me, it was thinking. Go ahead, make my day, it was thinking. Why does that very rude golden retriever bark all night long? I asked, glaring back at the dog. Maybe because he got freaked out by the sight of your 19-year-old student screwing in our garage, Jane said immediately without turning around. Maybe because Jamie Kearney was skinny dipping in our pool. That doesn't sound like the Jayster, I said tentatively. Someone had to haul him out after you disappeared with a net. Who's a net? I realized something. Oh, what net? I said flippantly. We don't own a net. Worried pause. Do we? I looked around, but you were already passed out in the guest room. She said this with fake nonchalance she had been developing since I moved into the house. I sighed. I did not pass out, Jane. I was exhausted. Why, Brett? Why were you so exhausted? She asked, her voice now clenched. I sipped my drink. Well, that dog's been doing doing its big barking routine and begging for attention the entire week. You know, honey, this happened to coincide with me starting my novel, and so it's extremely distracting and suspicious. Yes, I know. Victor doesn't want you to write another book, Jane said, turning the stove off and moving toward the sink. I'm so with you on that one. I need to see that dog frolic, I muttered. He's been depressed ever since I moved in and I've I never see him frolic. Well, when you kicked him the other night, hey, He was trying to eat a stick of butter, I exclaimed, sitting up. He was going after the loaf of cornbread on the counter. Why are we talking about the dog? She snapped, finally facing me. After a contained silence, I sipped my juice again and cleared my throat. So you want to read me my rights? Why bother, she said, tightly, turning away. You're still in a coma. I suppose we'll be discussing this in couples counseling. She said nothing. I decided to change the topic, hoping for a softer reaction. So, who was the guy who came as Patrick Bateman last night, I asked. The guy in the Armani suit with all the fake blood on it. I have no idea. A student of yours? One of your legions of fans? Why do you care? I, I didn't recognize him, I murmured. I, I thought, you thought what? That I knew him? Never mind. I shut up and thought about things for a moment or two. And did you ever figure out what happened in Sarah's room? I asked gently, because Jane, I think maybe she did it. I paused for emphasis. But she told me her doll did it. That bird thing, you know, the turbie I bought last summer? And, you know, that's pretty worrisome. And, by the way, where was Marta when this so-called attack happened? I, I think that's pretty Jane whirled toward me. Why are you avoiding the fact that maybe one of your drunk, fucked-up students did it? My students had better things to do last night than ransack our daughters. Yeah, like fucking our shower. I have no idea who they were. And snort coke off the countertop in the kitchen? She was still glaring at me, hands on her hips. A long pause in which I built to an outraged. People were in the kitchen last night? Yeah, people were doing drugs in the kitchen, Brett. She recited this line in her hip mode. Honey, look, drugs may have been done, but I'm sure they were consumed quietly and with discretion. I paused helplessly. And I know you were doing them too. Something caught in her throat. Sarcasm evaporated and she turned away from me again. She bowed her head. I noticed one hand was curled tightly in a fist. I could hear the erratic breathing that comes before tears. You mean I used to be doing them, I said softly. That sentence should be in the past tense, I paused. I'm up, aren't I? I love how he's just gaslighting her, Jesus Christ. See, here's the thing. He's portraying her as being the shrew, right? But she's on the right, because he invited all of his fucking grad students, and... They're fucking wild. And then he obvious, obviously gave Jay McIernie, the Jester some cocaine. And then Cocaine Jay ended up in the pool. So I think Cocaine Jay should be his new nickname, not the Jester. But this is all his fault. And he's just like, why are you giving me a hard time about it? Why can't you just move on? But she's right to talk to him about it. I wouldn't have to call Helen if you weren't using again, she said in a loud, anguished voice. She stopped and took a series of deep breaths to calm herself down. I can't do this now. Let's just forget it. That sounds reasonable, I murmured gently, turning back to the papers. I attempted a a long gulp from my glass, but juice sloshed over the rim, so I gave up and put it down on the table with a shaking hand. See, this is why in real life... Brett Easton Ellis is in a relationship with a guy my age and not a woman his own age because the guy who tweeted not that long ago to his drug dealer to bring Coke to a party uh, that man, even though he may have settled down a bit more in recent years, you know, that Brett Easton Ellis still very much exists and He would not work as a father. He would not work as a husband. Outraged by my casual tone, Jane whirled around again. It is illegal, Brett, just because it was consumed in our house. A private residence, I shouted back, doesn't make it any more legal. Well, it isn't technically legal, but she waited for me to finish the sentence. I chose not to. I didn't do drugs last night, Jane. That's a lie, she broke down. You're lying to me, and I don't know what to do about it. Uh, Leave him. Why did you marry him, Jane? Just because you have a kid together? What's weird to me is the way... I mean, I know that this is a book, right? This is fiction. But what's weird to me is how people operate. If you don't get along and you have a child together, it sounds like you need to break up regardless of the child. Yes, you should learn to work things out so you can exist in the world together amicably, or as Brady Sinellis would put it, ambially. But just, you know, this is something this is a trap that my parents fell into. You know, Uh, I could have existed without my parents being married. It would have been fine. We're going to skip ahead to chapter four, which takes place on the same day. Allegedly. Assumedly, rather. It's entitled The Novel. I started the outline for Teenage Pussy over the summer, and a lot have been accomplished despite the hours of playing Tetris on my gateway and constantly checking emails and rearranging the endless shelves of foreign editions that lined the, wa- the walls of my office. Today's interference, I needed to come up with a quote for a banal and harmless book written by an acquaintance of mine in the New York in New York, I was going to say The New Yorker and New York Times, yet another mediocre, polite novel, The Millipede's Lament, that was bound to get a spate of respectable reviews and then be totally forgotten, much like most literary fiction that comes out these days. The quote I ultimately devised was glib and evasive and a string of words so nonspecific that they could have been applied to just about anything. I don't think I've probably come upon a work so resolutely about itself in years. <laughs> How to say something without saying anything at all. <laughs> and then I turned and then I turned to a short story by one of my students from the writing class and quickly went through it. In the margins I wrote question marks, I circled words, I underlined sentences, I corrected grammar. I felt I made some balanced decisions. I have thoughts about this as someone who had to sit through writing workshops and also for a brief moment in time, got to teach a class. I never got to teach creative writing. I don't think I ever would have. I had to sit through in an advanced senior level writing course, mind you, students who had no business being in there, who turned in drafts that they'd put together, obviously the night before, things that they would say, this actually happened to me. Fuck you. Some of us came in there with expectations of learning something and in fact i learned nothing in that class and as a professor or an instructor i would say if you turn in a creative writing project a short story that obviously hasn't been proofread you're going to get a bad grade on it and we're not going to even bother going over it in class you know i feel like You have to be mindful of what's going on in students' lives. You have to be mindful of the fact that you're not the only class that that they're taking, right? However, you still need to have certain expectations. Otherwise, they're not going to learn, especially if you're trying to provide some sense of professionalism. Because what was always really odd to me about creative writing courses is that They try to teach you to write in an academic sense Academic creative writing, right? But not creative writing that would sell millions of copies, obviously Um, But, you know, even those people with million dollar book deals Still have to have their books edited So if you as one person can't edit your five story Your five page short story uh, Then you can't really learn in this medium, can you? Before resuming work on Teenage Pussy, I went through my emails. There were only two. One was from Buckley, something about a parent-teacher night next week with a pointed PS from the principal noting that Jane and I had failed to make the one in early September. And then I sighed when I saw where the other email came from, the Sherman Oaks branch of the Bank of America, and when it was sent, 2.40 a.m. I sighed again and I clicked on it and, as usual, was faced with a blank screen. I'd been receiving these emails since the beginning of October, unaccompanied by any explanation or demand. I'd called the bank several times since I had an account at that branch where my father's ashes were still stored in a safety deposit box. But the bank had no record of these sent emails and patiently explained that no one could possibly be working at that hour. Frustrated, I let it go, and the emails kept coming with a frequency that I simply became used to. But today, I scrolled through my filing cabinet until I found the first one, October 3rd at 2.40 a.m. The date seemed familiar, as did the time, but I couldn't figure out why. Annoyed at my inability to piece this together, I clicked off AOL and eagerly went to the Teenage Pussy file. The original title of Teenage Pussy had been, holy shit! but Knopf, who shelled out close to a million dollars for the North American rights alone, assured me that Teenage Pussy was the more commercial title. Outrageous Mike was considered briefly, but deemed non-controversial. Knopf was going to call it a pornographic thriller in their catalog, which excited me immensely and told me privately that Alfred and Blanche Knopf would be rolling over in their graves when the thing was published. Since I realized I was creating an entirely new genre, my bout of writer's block had vanished and I was working on the book daily, even though it was still only in the outline stage. Okay, before we read further, the idea that a pornographic thriller is a new genre is outrageous in and of itself, right? That existed before Brede Stinellis. It existed way after as well. It is what's selling... Tons of copies in Target and Amazon, indie authors that are actually making money, they're writing things like this. So in 2021 and 2022, I wrote a bunch of short stories, and one of them was one that will never see the light of day, and it's for good reason. I wrote it as a joke, and I turned it into a journal, and I really just wanted to see what would happen. Worst case scenario, they say no, right? But I took a scene that I'd written from another short story. It was this... This is getting way too complicated, and you probably don't care. It was my podcast. So I wrote a short story that was in toxic literature that is currently out of print, entitled Collected, and it is about a woman who kidnaps a man... And she creates a replica of his bedroom in her basement except for some um, bars that are separating him from um, a small walkway area that leads up to stairs where she brings him things like food. And there were two other kind of chapters to that story that never saw the light of day. And in one of them was a very graphic sex scene between the two of them. And I took that sex scene, changed the names, and I put put it in this short story that was about an author who, much in the way that I did, uh, uploaded a story about people fucking, and it sold a bunch of copies. I think it was a sci-fi sex story, and his wife said, this is what you're going to have to do from now on to make money. <laughs> So uh, I I could read it here on the podcast, but I think it would get me canceled if such a thing could ever happen. Anyway, uh, the book was the story of Michael Graves and this young hit Manhattan bachelor's erotic life—a guy who who loves to give love and loves to get loved back—is what I promised my publishers, and I envisioned a narrative that was. Elegantly hardcore and interspersed with jaunty bounce of my trademark laconic humor. It was going to contain at least a hundred sex scenes. I mean, Jesus, why not? I guffawed to my editor over lunch at the bar at the patroon while he idly checked his blood sugar. And you could read the novel as either a satire on the new sexual obnoxiousness or as the simple story of an average guy who enjoys defiling women with his lust. I was going to turn people on and make them think and laugh. That was the combo. Scatological humor intended and achieved. That was the plan. It seemed like a good one. Of course, this book doesn't actually exist. Uh, I want to read some of these uh, chapter titles here for you for shits and giggles. The Facial, The Silicone Queen, The Porta john The Intrepid Threesome, Her Boobage, The Clitorati, The Getaway... (laughs) hairy pinkish tacos. Am I too big for you? You know, I really don't want a girlfriend right now. Look, I have to catch an early fright, okay? Hey, did you get a chance to pick up my dry cleaning? I'm probably going to be quite distant now, and do you mind if I just jack off? Our hero, who calls himself the Sexpert, dates only models and carries around a large bag filled with various lubricants, Benoit balls, vibrating clitoral stimulants, and about a dozen strings of anal beads. Every girl he meets, he makes wet with excitement. He has the cute habit of licking their faces in public and fingering them beneath tables at Balthazar while drugging their gimlets with Oxycontin. He fucks one girl so hard that he breaks her pelvic bone. He fucks a semi-famous TV actress in the green room minutes before she's supposed to appear on Live with Regis and Kelly. He flashes his biceps and shows off his washboard abs to anyone who might look. This sounds like a book that someone had already written right now. This sounds like a book that people would actually buy and read and talk about now. His most recent conquest is hence the title, a particularly vapid 16-year-old who thinks you can get pregnant from oral sex and contract AIDS from drinking a Snapple. She also talks to birds and has a pet squirrel named Corky, as well as a problem with silverware. At restaurants, when a waiter receives a special, she always has to interrupt by asking, oh, so slowly, do you have to use a fork to eat that? But Mike finds her innocence alluring and soon initiates her into his world. This sounds almost like a prequel to Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I actually just finished a manuscript um, that a friend of mine wrote and he wanted me to beta read and it was a very very good novel and it's literary but it also has a lot of sex in it and um he happens to be a gay man so the sex happens to be between be between two men and I didn't flinch or anything during the sex scenes it didn't bother me but I was thinking wow he's really going for it in this because when I went for it in Greenskin, I only had two sex scenes. And yet, you know, it, it, some people seem to think that it's some long, perverse novel when that's only a very small portion of the novel. But here, Bredy Sinella is, you know, the whole book that he's writing, it seems to be one long sex scene. The phone rang, my line lit up, and I screened the call while staring into the computer It was Binky, my agent. I picked up immediately. How's my favorite author? Oh, I bet you say that to all your authors. In fact, I know you do. Actually, I do, but please don't tell any of them. I promise. But it means something to hear you say it nevertheless. In fact, one of my favorite authors called me today. And who might have that have been? It was Jay, Binky paused. He said you had quite the blowout last night. A kick-ass party indeed. I also paused, realizing something, and don't believe anything Jay tells you. Indeed, she said ominously. By the way, did you get that big royalty check for American Psycho from the Brits? I had it transferred to your New York account. Yes, I got the statement. Excellent. I did my Monty Burns. How's Jane? How are the kids? She paused then said blankly, I can't believe I just asked you that. I've known you for over 15 years and never thought I would ask you a question like that. I am now a committed father and husband, I said proudly. Yes, Binky murmured hesitantly. Yes. I snapped her out of disbelief. And I'm teaching. Unbelievable. It's just one day a week at a college, but the kids love me. Legend has it that more students tried to enroll in my writing class than for any other visiting writer who ever taught there, or so I'm told. How many students do you have? Well, I only wanted three, but the administration said that wasn't an acceptable number, so I have 15 of the little bastards. And how's the book going? Oh, so much for pleasantries. Those were pleasantries. I'm almost done with the outline, and the book is moving along right on schedule. I needed a cigarette and started looking through my drawers to find a pack. I'm no longer sweating the small stuff, Binky. Well, would you have time for a detour? But this is Knopf's lead title for next fall, which means I need to finish it by January, no? Well, Brett, you were the one who said you could write the thing in six months. No one believed it, but that due date is in your contract, and the Germans running your publishing house are displeased by extensions. You're sounding coy, Binky, I said, giving up on the cigarette. You're sounding very coy, and I like it. And you sound like your allergies are acting up, Binky said flatly. I have a feeling we didn't take our Claritin today, and I don't like it. My allergies are acting up like mad, I protested, then thought it through. And don't believe anything Jay tells you. Seriously, Brett, allergies... Don't mock my allergies. My nose is stuffed up, and I am exceedingly wheezy because of them. I paused, knowing this wasn't very convincing. Hey, I actually do yoga and have a Pilates trainer. How's that for rehabilitation? She let out a sigh. Have you ever heard of Harrison Ford, the very famous and once popular actor, "'He liked the polish you did on much to my chagrin "'and wants to talk to you about writing something. "'You have to go out there and meet with him "'and his people in the next couple of weeks, "'just for a day or two. "'I'm not sure if it, if it's such a great idea at this point. "'I'm just relaying the information.' "'And you did it so well,' I paused. "'But they, why can't they come here? "'I live in a perfectly nice town.' You'd have to go out just for a day or two. What's this thing about? Something about Cambodia or Cuba? It's all very vague. And I suppose they want me, the writer, to figure it out. Jesus. I'm just relaying the info, Brett. As long as Keanu Reeves is not co-starring, I would be more than delighted to have a meeting with Harrison. Then I remembered certain stories I'd heard. But isn't he supposed to be this giant blowhard? That's why I think it would be a perfect match. Um, Binky, what does that mean? Listen, I've got to run. It's the day from hell. In the background, I heard an assistant calling out. I'll tell them you're interested, and you can start figuring out the dates you can be in L.A. Well, thank you very much for the call. I love our mock formality. Oh, by the way, yeah? Happy Halloween. Uh, as we hung up, I suddenly realized what had been bothering me about the emails that were coming from the Bank of America in Sherman Oaks. October 3rd, That was my father's birthday. And that segued into another realization. 2.40 a.m. That was when, according to the coroner, he had died. I pondered this for about a minute. It was a disturbing connection. But I was hung over and exhausted, and I needed to be on campus in 30 minutes, so maybe it was just a coincidence, and maybe I was giving it more significance than it deserved. All right, so it's interesting that he brings this up. Uh, it's essentially what's happening from his perspective is his dead father is sending him these messages that say nothing uh, because his father's ashes are in that bank, and that's when he died, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There's a weird phenomenon on, well, phenomenon, it's a trend phenomenon, it's too complicated a word for TikTok, but on TikTok right now, there are people who are playing the song Oh Superman by Laurie Anderson. I know Laurie Anderson from working with Adrian Ballou and also being married to Lou Reed. Oh, and her great... Appearance on Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Otherwise, I know just about nothing about Lori Anderson, but I know who she is. And then suddenly TikTok has her song, Oh Superman, that was used by a serial killer in the 80s uh, during his murders or whatever. Uh, David Tennant played him in a movie that I'd love to see, but I haven't gotten around to yet. Um, they're using it to... There's a line in the song that says, oh, you don't know me, but I know you. And it sounds really creepy and whatnot. But some of the people on the trend are showing a picture of their grandfather. And then they're showing a picture of their son who looks just like the grandfather. <gasps> Genetics. But then there are times where people are showing how their father died last year. And yesterday they got a text from his number. You know, weird shit like that. And there are explanations for these things, allegedly. And I do believe in certain weirder paranormal aspects of life. Sure, I've seen ghosts. And I also acknowledge the fact that maybe I just saw them in my head. Maybe I saw hallucinations. Maybe I wanted to see something there. But all the same, I've seen ghosts. And one of my ghost stories since we're reading what is kind of a ghost novel. um, I was coming out of this room when I was about 12 or 13, and across from this room is the room that used to be my kind of playroom, and then it became my guitar room. We always kept that door open, and so when I was leaving my bedroom, I saw a man who looked just like my grandfather, who died before I was born, and he was wearing a brown suede jacket. I looked in the room. There's no one there. I tell my mother this information. She says, oh, that was probably Uncle Myron. He wore a brown suede jacket the day he went to go see Papa in the hospital. That wasn't the first time I'd seen a ghost. It wasn't the last time. I haven't had any sightings in recent years but my mother had a weird incident where after her house burned down she went to you know gather things after the fire was put out after insurance had looked at everything um a lot of the neighbors in that neighborhood had ransacked the house and stolen a lot of her things that weren't already ruined and she could smell the same cigar that her father used to smoke. You know, the brain allegedly has different coping mechanisms for stressful situations. And maybe that was what was happening there, but there's no real explanation for me seeing a dead uncle who I'd never met before had no idea. He wore a Brown suede jacket the day he went to go see my grandfather in the hospital before he died. I want to read this scene on page 101 through 102 just because it's interesting. And I want to skip ahead in the novel because it just needs to happen. When I looked up, a student had appeared in the doorway and was staring at me sheepishly. There was nothing unusual about him at first glance, a tall Handsome boy in a generic way, a lean face, slightly chiseled, thick reddish-brown hair, very tightly cropped, a backpack slunk over his shoulders. He was wearing jeans and an antique olive green Armani sweater with the designer's emblem, an eagle on it. He was holding a Starbucks cup and seemed more alert than the squinty-eyed slackers that populated the campus. And though I couldn't place him, I knew I'd seen him before, and so I was intrigued. Plus, he was holding a copy of my first novel, Lesson Zero, which made me stand up and say, Hello, that's a wonderful novel you're holding. Oh yeah, hi, hope I'm not bothering you. No, not at all, come in, come in. He looked away and blushed deeply, then shuffled into the office and carefully sat down in the chair across the desk from me. Well, I'm a big fan, Mr. Ellis. Isn't there a... A law against formality at this place," I said, with an expression of mock distaste, hoping to relax him since he was sitting so rigidly in the chair. "Call me Brett." I paused. "Have we met before?" "I'm Clayton, and I'm a freshman here." "And I don't, I don't think so," the boy said. "I just want to know if you could sign this for me." Interesting that this boy's name is Clayton, and the protagonist of Lesson Zero's name is Clay. His hands trembled slightly as he held up the book. Of course, I'd be happy to. I studied him as he handed me the book, which was in pristine condition. I opened it to the copyright page and saw it was a first edition, which made the book I was holding an extremely rare and valuable book. I fucking told you! In the first chapter of this book, I fucking told you. Sorry. I have class in a couple of minutes, so he gestured at himself. Oh, of of course, I won't keep you long. I set the book down and searched my desk for a pen. So, Clayton, I assume all your friends call you Clay. He stared at me and then, understanding what I was getting at, grinned and said, yeah. He waved a hand at the book, like Clay in the novel. That's the connection I made, I said, opening a drawer. Is there another? I found a pen and then looked up. He was staring at me questioningly. That's the right one. You were correct, I assured him, and then I couldn't help it. You look very familiar, he just shrugged. Well, what are you majoring in, I asked. I want to be a writer. It seemed hard for him to admit this. Did you apply to my writing course? I'm a freshman. It's only open to juniors and seniors. Well, I could have pulled a few strings, I said delicately. Based on what, he asked, a snap in his voice. I realized that I was flirting with him and suddenly looked back at the book and pen in my hand embarrassed for myself. I'm not really any good, he offered, sitting up, noting the sudden subtle shift in the room's vibe. Well, neither are any of the other students, so you'd fit right in, I laughed dryly. He did not. My parents, uh, well, my dad, actually, he wanted me to go to business school. Ah, yes, the age-old dilemma. Clayton purposefully checked his watch, another gesture that indicated he needed to go. You can just sign my name, I I mean your name, he stood up. Are you working on anything? I asked gently as I signed my name with an uncharacteristic flourish on the title page. Well, I have part of a novel done. I handed him back the book. Well, if you're interested in showing me anything. I left the offer hanging there, waiting for him to accept At that point, I realized where I'd seen Clayton before. He was at the Halloween party last night. He was dressed as Patrick Bateman. I'd seen him when I was looking out Sarah's window as he disappeared into the darkness of Ellensnor's lane. I breathed in. Something caught in me, and I shivered. He was putting the the book into his backpack when I asked, So you weren't at the party my wife and I threw last night? He stiffened and said, no, no, I wasn't. You know, I can only relate through my own writing, and I apologize to everyone out there who's tired of hearing me talk about my writing, but I've never created a character that is iconic as Patrick Bateman, so there's also that. However, I have created characters that have really stuck with me um, from my first four novels, especially, obviously, um, Birch, Charles Price, Ken Price, Nero, um, I think I I tried to make reference. I wanted to make reference to Charles price in this current novel that I'm working on, but I didn't. Um, Birch is referenced because of course, Steve Sebastian shows up in the novel Birch for a couple of scenes, but you know, it's hard to escape characters that you work on for years and, Readers will still want to talk to you about them, of course, and you're trying to move on. But at the same time, it's nice, you know? It's nice to have the work that you've put into something come back to you in conversation with someone that you don't really know. So I skipped ahead to page 125 to a a creepier scene. The night was drenched with darkness, and the darkness really was dazzling, and the sound of the wind seemed amplified, and I noticed that Victor was standing up again and staring out into the woods, the hot wind ruffling his golden coat. I just kept staring into the blackness of the woods, drawn toward the darkness as I had always been, and the wind rushed up against me, and the wind felt feral. There was no other word for it. The wind felt feral. Hello, darkness, my old friend, the lyric drifted into my thoughts, and I felt as if a boundary were being erased. I closed my eyes. I suddenly realized how alone I was. I opened my eyes when a moth landed on my arm. It looked as if the entire world were dying and turning black. The darkness was eclipsing everything. And then Victor started barking, much more insistently this time, shaking as he stared out at the woods, and his barking was soon interspersed with growls. And just as suddenly, he stopped. He stood still. He had heard something. It's raining here. I don't know if you can hear it on my skylight. It's kind of an interesting sound to have in the background. He kept looking into the woods, and then he leapt off the deck and ran toward them, barking again. Victor, I called out. I could see a shadow loping along the field as if he was chasing something and he was still barking. But when he entered the woods, the barking stopped. I sipped my drink and decided to wait for him to come back. I looked at the bathing suit. I thought about the Mercedes cruising down Elisnor Lane. How long had it been following us? Who had been in the jacuzzi? And then I thought I saw Victor. A shape, low and hunched over, had emerged from the woods, but I couldn't make out what it was. It was the size of Victor, perhaps larger, but its movements were spider-like, as if it lurched grotesquely sideways, clumsily darting in and out of the trees at the edge of the woods. Victor, I called again. The thing stopped moving for a moment. And then its dark shape scuttled sideways. It picked up speed, and it began shambling back into the woods. I realized, sickening, sickeningly, that it looked as if it was hunting something. Victor! I heard what sounded like squeals of despair coming from the dog, but they stopped abruptly, and there was only silence. I waited, squinting. I could make out Victor's bulk as he slowly walked back across the field, and I couldn't help feeling weak with relief when the dog, now eerily calm, moved past me and into the kitchen. But then something forced me to understand that I was not alone out here. "'Can you feel me?' it asked. "'Go away,' I whispered. "'I was too fucked up to deal with this. "'It was time you learned something.' "'I could hear it moaning. "'And whatever was out there knew who I was. "'Something was moving in the woods again. "'The swings on the swing set began rattling and a sulfurous rush of hot winds, "'and then almost immediately they stopped swinging.' I could hear the soft snapping sounds of something approaching, and it was moving eagerly. It wanted to be noticed. It wanted to be seen and felt. It wanted to whisper my name. It wanted to deceive me, but it wasn't making itself visible yet. And as I kept peering into the darkness, I saw another figure hurrying across the field, grasping what looked like a pitchfork. I stood immobilized on the deck, my teeth had started chattering, the wind gusted again, and then there was the sound of locusts swarming I started shaking when it sensed how frightened I was, there was a strange odor in the air get inside, I told myself, get inside the house now, but when I looked back at the house, I knew it couldn't protect me from what was out there whatever it was could get in and then I saw the headstone It was off to the side of the edge of our yard, and it sat at a crooked angle, jutting up from the weeds that blackened the field, and my momentary annoyance that the decorators hadn't carted it off turned to dread as I found myself unable to stop moving toward it. The ground beneath the headstone was burst apart, as if something buried there had clawed its way out. Over the roar of the wind I could hear an oddly distinct flapping sound, as I moved toward the headstone, I felt convinced that something had actually crawled out of that fake grave. Something huge and black was passing over the house. It was flying, and it had spun around in midair. It was suddenly beneath me, and the wind kept howling. And There was briefly the snarl of animals fighting in the woods, and then the thing began circling above me as I knelt in front of the headstone next to the hole in the ground. There was something written. I started brushing the fake moss and cobwebs aside. That headstone streaked with dried blood. Scrawled on it in red letters was Robert Martin Ellis, 1941-1992. to 1992. The wind knocked me off balance and I fell backwards. The field was damp and spongy, And as I tried to stand up, I slipped on a large wet patch of dirt. But when I put a hand down to steady myself, it wasn't wetness I felt, but something vicious and slimy that smelled dank. And I kept trying to stand up because something was getting closer to me. The wind slammed the kitchen door shut. Whatever was approaching me was hungry. It was pitiful. It was awesome. It needed something I didn't want to give. I shouted out as I finally lifted myself up and lunged toward the house. Whatever was behind me kept shambling forward, its arms outstretched and grasping. Once inside, I ran into the guest room and locked myself in it. I waited desperately for Jane and the kids to get home. When they returned, I made sure all the doors... All the doors to the house were locked and that the various alarms were set. I pretended to be interested in Sarah's candy. Jane ignored me. Robbie barely looked my way before climbing the stairs of his room. Back in the guest room, drinking from the magnum of vodka, I kept thinking one thing. Just two words. He's back. For a guy who doesn't ...really get recognition as a horror author. I think that Bredy Sinellis does a really good job of building suspense. Even if it's not in the most sincere way, it still works here. You know, he's working in this meta realm. But at the same time, this could be a straightforward horror novel if he really wanted it to be. But is it really his father... We'll have to find out in the next edition of Demise of the Podcast. <laughs> I don't know how long we're going to go into this book. I think American Psycho was maybe five episodes. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but you know, I'd be willing to, to do a longer series on this. Who the hell cares? Um, people who want to listen will listen. But you know, that doesn't mean that I'm going to do that for every novel, obviously. But, you know, this is my favorite author. Why not give him more time on here? He only has a, a, a few works that I can read on here. This book is clearly denser than his other work that we've written on here so far. So, why not? Anyway, this has been Patrick Adler with the demise of the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the series. But most of all, I hope that you're going to have some happy reading and happy writing. And if you get over yourself, you know? Just go fuck yourself.